And our text will be verses 5 through 8. Romans 14, verses 5 through 8. Listen to this. This is the very word of God. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. And that's the reading of God's word. Let's ask him to bless it to us now. Father in heaven, as we come to the scriptures now and to the ministry of the word, please bless your word. And we pray you grant some of the very things we just sang in that hymn. And uh, please empower my voice. And grant, Lord, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight. Lord, our strength and our redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Many years ago, I got a gift from my brother-in-law, it was a little framed quote from John Calvin, who, by the way, I'm told that today, July 10th, not only is the Mark's anniversary and Dave and Betsy's anniversary, but it's also John Calvin's birthday. So happy birthday, John Calvin. And my brother-in-law gave me this. Uh, he's, uh, he's a seminary graduate and ordained minister. And this says, We are not our own. Let not our reason nor our will, therefore, sway our plans and deeds. We are not our own. Let us, therefore, not set it as our goal to seek what is expedient for us according to the flesh. We are not our own, and so far as we are able, let us, therefore, forget ourselves and all that is ours. Conversely, we are God's. Let us, therefore, live for him and die for him. We are God's. Let his wisdom and will, therefore, rule all our actions. We are God's. Let all the parts of our life accordingly strive toward him as our only lawful goal. <clears throat> so you see Calvin's heart there, and how he prompts us to take heart that we are not our own, we are God's, we are his. Now, it's been a number of months since we were together in Romans. It was back in February, I think, that I preached the first four verses of chapter 14. But just by way of reminder, those opening verses of this chapter teach us and remind us that God has welcomed us, and therefore we're to welcome one another. In spite of the fact that we reach different conclusions about different practices in our day-to-day -day lives, and he makes reference in those first several verses to the one who's weak in faith and describes the person who's weak in faith as one who uh, 
because his conscience is weak, abstains from certain foods or whatever. And there are a number of variables we can plug in to that equation. And what we have here in verses 5 through 8 is a continuation of that thought. Welcoming one another because God has welcomed us. And these verses reinforce to us the fact that our lives every day are governed by the fact that we belong to Jesus Christ. We are not our own. The three things I'd like to draw out of the text for your consideration this morning are, first of all, that you and I are to honor the Lord as stewards of our time. Secondly, that we're to honor the Lord in all of our choices. And then finally, that we live to the Lord and we die to the Lord. So first of all, we have this admonition, this exhortation. Honor the Lord as a steward of your time. Uh, Verses 5 and into the um, first part of verse 6 refers to days. And the primary concern in the immediate context here is uh, the esteem, or we could say observance, of certain special days. There's a broader application, though, and that's what I'm going to seek to impress upon you, because it is talking about whether or not to observe special days, but it really then goes back to all of our time because all of our time belongs to God. And these verses teach us things about how we're to view our time and how we're to esteem and to use our time. You know, those familiar words of Psalm 139, verse 16, they they teach us that every day we live is a gift. Every, Every day we live is ordained by God for us to live. Verse 16 of Psalm 139, the psalmist says, In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. God knows down to the day, to the hour, to the minute, the duration of your life, because he's ordained it. And so as you go through life, your days, your hours are his. And they're a stewardship from the Lord. Now, in verse 5, the primary concern is special days. And I want to just take a moment or two to make a clarification here because I think it's very relevant. I debated about how much time to spend on this or whether to spend much time at all on it. But it's relevant in our society. It's relevant in the church. When he says one one person esteems one day as better than another, another esteems all days alike, each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. He is categorically not talking about the weekly Sabbath. That is not at all what's in view here. How is it that I can say it's not talking about the weekly Sabbath? Well, two main things. First of all, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy is a moral command. It's part of the moral law. So consecrating one day out of seven to God is a moral requirement. That's not a question of Christian liberty. It's not a question of private practice or just decide for yourself whether or not to do this. 
There's no other command in the Decalogue that we would apply that kind of approach to. Oh, it's, uh, you know, one person decides it's okay to murder, one person doesn't murder. Let each man be fully convinced in his own mind. No. Same with stealing, false witness, adultery, all of them. Put any of those commandments up and right there alongside them on the same moral level is remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. There's something holy, there's something righteous and morally right about observing a special day to the Lord every week. So that's number one. Number two is that when Paul was writing in the first century, the observance or the non-observance of days and esteeming one as better than another was a matter of Jewish festivals, Old Testament rites, in which there were many special days that the Jews formerly observed and were no longer required of God's people under the New Testament. However, some people continued to observe them. And then the Judaizers, as we've come to call them, they came along and started haranguing the Gentile Christians and saying, you need to be observing these days as well. And that's why Paul goes after them so, so uh, earnestly and with such vehemence when he says, oh, you can't require that of them. And he, he tells the Galatians, you observe days and months and seasons and years and he's doing it in a very critical spirit because they were, they were imposing that upon Gentile Christians. So what's in view here in Paul's letter to the Romans is not the weekly Sabbath. <clears throat> so you have this mixed church in Rome because the church in Rome had a lot of Jews in it who had converted to Christ. And, of course, it had lots of Gentiles who had never had anything to do with Judaism. And they're dwelling together, they're worshiping together, they're having fellowship together. And there was diversity of practice about these days. Some people observed certain days as special, and then a lot of them didn't. And what does the Holy Spirit say through Paul to the church in Rome? Does he say, hey, we all need to get on the same page and you all need to be observing these days? No, he doesn't say that. Nor does he say, you Jewish Christians, throw those days out. They don't mean anything anymore. Quit bothering with them. What does he say? He says, be fully convinced in your own mind. Which teaches us how important it is for each of us to know what we believe and why. Well, how did this all work out in the first century church in Rome? I want you to imagine for a moment a scenario here. You've got a Jewish family. This Jewish family is brought out of death into life. They're, they're born again. They become Christians. They convert to Christianity, and they're in the church in Rome. And because their heritage is Jewish, they continue to celebrate the Passover. I mean, why not? 
you might have as well. It was such a long-standing tradition. It had been the tradition of your people for 1,500 years. And letting go of it would have been difficult. And it was meaningful to them, so they kept observing it. And what does Scripture say to that Jewish family that keeps celebrating the Passover? I'll paraphrase, but it's basically saying, if you're doing this in honor of the Lord and giving thanks, do it. It's fine. But what about those Gentile Christians? They never observed Passover before. Now that they've become Christians and they're in the church and they see these other Christians celebrating Passover, they might be thinking, should we be doing that? They might even have Jewish Christians saying, yes, you should be doing this. But the scriptures say to them, you've never observed Passover before, there's no need for you to observe it now. The operative factor is this. In both cases, the Jewish family, the Gentile family, individual Christians of all different backgrounds, are you honoring the Lord in what you do? And are you giving him thanks? That's the concern. And that's how it would work out in the church in Rome in the 60s. The, the 60s, I mean. 60 AD or so. How does it work out or apply in the church today? How does it work out in First Scots? We are commanded to observe one day each week in honor of the Lord. That's it. No more. There is no scriptural mandate for us to observe or celebrate Easter. I've read the Bible all the way through several times. Probably about 30 times at least. I've never seen a command anywhere in Holy Scripture that says, you shall celebrate Easter. You shall set aside a day to specifically observe and remember and celebrate the resurrection. It doesn't say anywhere in the Bible that we should celebrate Christmas or observe Advent or anything else. Now, is it wrong to observe those days or celebrate those seasons? Scripture doesn't command it. Is it wrong to do it? You know, there are some who would say yes. There are some who would say, you should not be celebrating Christmas. It's based on a pagan holiday and the surrounding the winter solstice and the church just invented it and said, oh, we're going to celebrate Christ's birth now to draw people away from those pagan events and holidays. Maybe you, maybe you don't, but maybe you do know Christians who don't celebrate Christmas. Or Easter even. I mean, why do we meet on the first day of the week in the first place? It's because Christ was raised on this day and every Lord's Day we celebrate our risen Lord. We don't have any direction from Scripture to set aside one day to specifically celebrate that. And the word Easter comes from Ashtar, which is a Babylonian goddess. And Some would say, yes, it's wrong to celebrate those events, but this is what Scripture says. If you observe it in honor of the Lord and you do so giving thanks, it's not wrong for you to observe those things. Go ahead. Make sense? 
you apply the principle we find in Romans chapter 14, verse 3. This was going back to the people who, in some cases, abstain from foods and in some cases eat them. And it says, let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. That's the principle. We are to live every day in obedience to the Lord. We are to live every day in honor of Him, walking with Him, living, to use that Latin phrase, coram Deo, living before the face of God. That's our calling. That's our mission. That's our duty. Every day, every month, every season, every year is a stewardship from the Lord. Every hour, every moment, every breath you breathe is a gift from Him. Honor Him accordingly. In all your ways, acknowledge Him. Honor the Lord as a steward of your time. But that takes us to our second point. Because our obligation to God and to honor Him goes beyond our time. It goes to all the decisions we make in life. And this text commands that we honor the Lord in all of our choices. Verse, when we get to verse 6 in the text, that harkens back to verses 2 and 3 because it reintroduces the idea about food, the issue of food, where you've got some people eating and some people abstaining. And it applies these principles of honoring the Lord and giving thanks because when you get to your days and then your food, your daily bread, that, that's really... You know, kind of Scripture's way of saying this applies to everything about life. Now, I want you to look at verse 6 with me again. And if, you, uh, if you're a student or a lover of, of grammar, I want you to notice that the words of verse 6 are phrased in terms of um, indicatives. These are declarative sentences. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. So you've got imperatives there, but it's instruction for Christians and implied in those, um, excuse me, you've got uh, indicatives, and implied in those indicatives are imperatives. So what Scripture is saying is if you eat, eat in honor to the Lord and give thanks. If you abstain, abstain in honor of the Lord, and give thanks. And the principle for us, and a kind of an early point of application here is, whatever it is you're doing, whatever that thing in life is that you've made a decision about, this is how I'm going to go about this particular issue, this is how I'm going to handle it, this is what I'm going to do or not do, or eat or not eat. If you are doing or not doing something on the basis of supposed religious conviction, but you're doing it or not doing it with a joyless, grumbling spirit, then you need to search your heart and educate your conscience. Because whatever you do or don't do, or partake of or abstain from, you need to do it in honor of the Lord and with thanksgiving, not with a, with a grudging spirit. And if that grudging spirit is there, something's wrong. 
So we've got here in our text in Romans a whole life principle, something that applies to every hour of every day, and that is that honoring the Lord is a way of life. Honoring the Lord is a whole life principle. That's why Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 31. So, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. 1 Corinthians 10, 31. So, honoring the Lord is a way of life, but so is giving thanks. Giving thanks, just like honoring the Lord, is a a whole life principle. It's a way of life. And that's why Paul in Colossians chapter 3, verse 17 says, And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of our Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. That's the principle. We're to honor the Lord in all of our choices. You know that familiar phrase in Proverbs chapter 3, verse 6. I kind of alluded to it already once, but it says, um, in all your ways, acknowledge Him. Now, when this comes to moral issues, those moral issues, those clearly moral issues, are, they're non-negotiable. It's not a question about a decision that we make about whether to do this or not do that. If it's one of those clear moral issues from Scripture, then we're to do what God says and we're to abstain from what God uh, prohibits. You know, and those moral issues, let's be honest, they're usually, most of the time, they're a lot clearer than we like to admit. You know, we like to intentionally blur the lines sometimes. But uh, what's required of us in the Sixth Commandment? It requires that we undertake all lawful endeavors to preserve our own lives and the lives of others. That's a moral requirement. That's not an option. It's not a matter of Christian liberty. Same with honoring marriage. Every person is is required by God to honor marriage. Every husband and wife is required by God to be faithful to their spouse. We're required to preserve our own purity and the purity of others. These are all moral issues. There's no guesswork. We're to lawfully benefit our own estate and the estate of others. In other words, we're to love our neighbor and we're to love God. Those are the moral things. (coughs) But what about those issues of Christian liberty, as we call it? What about those issues of conscience, where there aren't necessarily clear lines drawn and it's left to us to to decide how are we going to go forward? What will we do? And I would admit, I'll freely admit, that if you've got clear moral commands and then you've got issues of conscience, sometimes there are difficulties in drawing the line between the two. Sometimes the lines are a little bit blurred. And, and since really issues of Christian conscience and Christian liberty involve some specific application of the moral law, it stands to reason that sometimes there might be a little bit of confusion there. Usually these matters of liberty involve some specific application of the moral law. 
So let's consider a few of those just for some concrete examples. And one of the most controversial, perhaps, one of the hot-button issues when it comes to Christian liberty, of course, is the, the use of alcoholic beverages. Drinking beer, drinking wine. And there are Christians who would argue that to drink beer or to drink wine is categorically sin. A little further down in the spectrum, there are some who say, I don't think it's sin, but I think it's dangerous, and so I'm not going to partake. And then others, well, I just don't like it. It's okay with my brother or sister, but uh, not for me. And then others who partake, and Lord willing, in modest, uh, moderation, because that's what we're called to. And Drunkenness is forbidden. Drunkenness is a sin. But all these people, wherever they fall in that spectrum of opinion and that spectrum of practice are Christians who've reached different conclusions about this question of alcohol. There are many others. I'll just throw out a few for the sake of illustration. Think for a moment of, um, of women's attire. Should women wear pants or only dresses and skirts? Should they wear pants when they attend public worship? Should they ever wear pants? I mean, those are men's clothes. The scriptures have things to say about stuff like that. And there are Christians who believe that women shouldn't wear pants, categorically shouldn't. Some who would say, Women, when you come to worship, you ought to be wearing a dress, not pants. And on down the line. There's the whole spectrum. Just as in the other example I gave her. Oh, what about head coverings? You know, women will wear head coverings as a, as a fashion item to complete their outfit. But then there's this um, conviction that many have that in worship, particularly during prayer, women ought to have their heads covered with a hat or something. Then there's use of television. Should Christians watch television or not? Should they go to movies? Should they listen to this or that type of music? What's right? What's wrong? Christians often have very strong opinions about many of these issues. And those opinions oftentimes are in conflict, they're different. And even within this room, in this very hour, there might be some who fall on different places of the spectrum with with regard to any number of these issues. So what's right? What's right? How do we know? Well, remember that verse from Proverbs, because it goes on. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will direct your path. He'll show you. And applying the principle that we've already seen in Romans 14, here's the deal. Because the path that he leads for you might not be the exact same path he leads for someone else. And so, if you end up being a person that on some issue or another ends up with stronger scruples or a stricter position, don't judge your brother who's not as strict as you or your sister. If you happen to be one of those who on a given issue has a stronger sense of liberty, don't despise 
the brother whose scruples are stronger and more strict. That's what we're being taught here. Because we're to honor the Lord in all our choices. And if we're going to honor the Lord, we must honor our brothers and sisters. You can't do one without the other. But then finally, the the passage teaches us that we live to the Lord and we die to the Lord. You see, none of us lives in isolation, do we? None of us exists in a vacuum. None of us lives independently. So it says in verse 7, none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. We Americans are known for what has been called our rugged individualism. And there's some merit to that. But we are all ultimately dependent creatures. You can live off the grid. You can hunt your own food and grow your own crops and be as independent as you want to be, but you're still a dependent creature, utterly dependent upon the Lord God and upon his provision. Everyone has to admit that they're dependent. We love our independence, nationally, personally, but we're all truly dependent creatures. Everyone has to admit it, and Christians ought to know it better than anybody. In fact, not only do we know it, but we embrace it. We say to God, Lord, I need you. I'm dependent upon you for the forgiveness of my sins, for the provision of daily bread. I need the Lord. What is it to be a Christian? If not to confess our hopelessness, to confess our helplessness, and to reach out to God in our need and to seek Christ, to meet all those needs. The text says, if we live, we live to the Lord. The we there is a reference to Christians. If we live, and what it means is while we live, we live to the Lord. As it says in Galatians 2.20, this is our testimony, each one of us who is in Christ. I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. So if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. And if there ought to be understood as when. When we die, we die to the Lord. And so we have those assuring words of Jesus Christ. I am the resurrection of the, and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. If we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. We live our lives for him. We follow him. We're accountable to him. We love him. And when we die, we die to the Lord. It is healthy. It is healthy for you to reflect on the fact that you will someday die. Even if you're a young person. Maybe especially if you're a young person, 
because you don't have some of those same daily reminders that we're breaking down and decaying as some of the older among us do. It is healthy. It's not morbid. It's wise to reflect on the fact that we will someday die. But Christians die in hope. Christians die in gospel hope. And we, through Christ and His Spirit, can die without fear. In anticipation of glory. In anticipation of the resurrection of the body. And the hope of life eternal with Him in glory. We live to the Lord and we die to the Lord. Matthew Poole summed it up this way. We spend our lives in his service and we part with our lives at his appointment at all times and in all estates, whether of health or sickness, abundance or poverty, life or death, we are the Lord's property and at his disposal. He hath an absolute dominion over us, living or dying, in this world or in the next. Let those realities, let those principles govern all your questions and all your discussions and all your decisions day by day. I want to conclude with just a few points of application. First is, and I've made reference to this one already, know what you believe and why. You have a duty to educate and train your conscience. Remember what it said at the end of verse 5. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. Through continual prayer, continual study of the Bible, you can gain clearer insight into the application of Christ's commandments to the details of your life. That's what the writer of the Hebrews was talking about, at least in part, in Hebrews 5.14, when he was speaking of having your powers of discernment trained by daily practice. And so when Paul wrote, be fully persuaded in your own mind, Being fully convinced in your own mind doesn't mean just stubbornly doing something just because. Being fully convinced in your own mind just doesn't mean just doing something because that's the way you've always done it or because that's what your mom and dad did or because that's not what they did or whatever. Being convinced fully in your own mind is growing in maturity in the faith and letting your growing and maturing faith guide you in the issues of life. You have a duty to educate and train your conscience. Secondly, this I alluded to as well. If you cannot give thanks in any given course of action, your motives are probably wrong. Look with me again at the end of verse 6. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. You've got these two models. One's doing one thing, one's doing another, but they're both doing what they do or don't do to the honor of the Lord, and they're doing it with thanksgiving. They're honoring the Lord. One by eating, the other by abstaining. So if you're abstaining from something, but you're grumpy and discontent about it, you're probably in a different category than those two because you're not glorifying God. You're not giving thanks. And so what you need to do is get on your knees You need to do business before the throne of grace and ask God to show you what he would have you do. And why? 
See, whether you're eating or abstaining, observing or not observing, doing or not doing, here's one crucial litmus test. Can I give thanks for this? And if in your heart you can't give thanks, go to the prayer closet and work through it with the Lord. Go to the Scriptures. Third, you will die. See to it that you're ready and that you die to the Lord. Scripture says it is appointed for each of us to die. And the Lord has set the date. I didn't know this morning until Dave told me that today was Calvin's birthday. That just wasn't even on my radar. But God ordained the date of the birth of John Calvin. He ordained the date of the death of John Calvin, and he's done the exact same thing for every soul in this room. There's a date on God's divine, infinite, holy calendar. And on that date, you will appear before him. The day is coming. We're each appointed to die. And after this comes judgment, the scripture says. Each one of us is on the way to court. So we should come to terms with God before we get to court. Please do that. The only way to come to terms with God is to confess your sins and seek forgiveness through His Son, Jesus Christ. See, God is offering you a plea bargain, but it's only good while you live. He's offering to settle out of court with you, but you can only do it through Jesus Christ by repenting of your sins and turning to Him and receiving forgiveness through His blood. Well, then finally, I want to close with some words of Charles Hodge as he kind of summed up this passage. He wrote, It is for Christ and in subjection to his will that every Christian endeavors to regulate his heart, his conscience, and his life. This is the profoundest homage the creature can render to his creator. You are not your own. You are bought with a price. You are Christ's. Live for him. Honor him and give him thanks. Let's pray together. Father, give us greater grace and grant, Lord, that in humility we may walk with you, that we may do justice and love mercy and walk humbly with you, educate our consciences, mature us in the faith. And may this all be for the glory of your holy name.